May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Colossians 1.11. Father God, O Holy One, we stand here in awe of you. You are our God, the creator of all things. Thank you for your unconditional love and grace that you give to us so freely. Thank you for the cross, for delivering us from the domains of darkness that we may share in the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father God, you know every thought of our minds and fears of our hearts. Many of us are heavily burdened with difficult relationships, stresses of work, home, school, sickness, pain, and our own insecurities. Move us to lay them all down at the, at the cross today, that we may be renewed in your spirit, knowing that all these battles we are fighting have already been won. We pray for New Hope Uptown. We pray that you would continue to bless this church, that we may be a blessing to others outside of this community. We pray for this year's India missions team. May you fill them with your spirit that they may be sensitive to your leading. We pray for your protective hand over the team and their families as they prepare to go to India. We pray for Pastor Yah that your spirit may move him to speak truth with boldness today. We invite you into our hearts that we may receive your word humbly, obey, and live out your, our faith daily. May we seek you in all that we do, and may we rejoice in you always. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So today's sermon is pretty controversial. So I'm going to talk about Q&A because I wholeheartedly invite you to text away any questions. They are all anonymous. Um, I don't know if the, uh, the PowerPoint is still up. It seems, okay, cool. Let's, let's wake it up. And um, yeah, so uh, it's going to be on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, probably one of the most controversial passages in the entire, uh, at least in the New Testament. And here at Uptown, we love questions. We love conversations. Uh, I'm not going to be able to go over it verse by verse because it is loaded. It's 30-some verses. So I'm sure there will be questions. Um, so definitely don't hesitate to ask. Um, so the title of this sermon is Gender, Social Life, and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Although this passage may seem like it's going all over the place, let me just give you the preview, what this sermon is about. The TLD, DL, too long didn't listen version is really... Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it alters every aspect of our reality, specifically the way we look at gender, which is very relevant because gender is a very controversial topic, especially today, and also the way we conduct our social lives. Every aspect of our life, because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, everything is altered now. And we've been looking at this throughout the First Corinthians uh, series, whether it's our sexual immorality, whether it's our sex life, the way we conduct romantic relationships, the way we handle conflicts within the church, outside the church, every aspect of our life because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us has been radically transformed, specifically for the purposes of this passage, gender and social life. Uh, before I read the passage, it's pretty lengthy. Um, again, this was written 2,000 years ago in a completely different culture. Can anyone guess what part, uh, sound, actually this is, what part of the female body is written about more than any other part? Actually, no, let's not, let's not guess. That, that, that's, yeah, it, it, I thought it was a good idea when I was preparing, but now that I'm saying it out loud, this is a slippery slope. 
Yeah, let's just move on. Let's just read the passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 34. And this is Paul writing. Now I commend you because you, are, you remember me in everything and you maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Some of us are wondering, whoa, whoa, Paul, what, what are you talking about here? Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. We're not going to unpack that there, but that's probably the practices of Roman religion. A lot of these pagan cults, the men and women, they would cover their heads and they would pray to their God. And Paul's probably talking about that. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. We'll talk about that. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. For since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Angels is probably a reference to Genesis. Where um, the angelic like beings were kind of uh, lusting after a woman. Um, so let's move on here. Uh, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things, man and woman, are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair... It is her glory, for her hair is given to her for covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do commend you, because I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord... Well, I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And this is why I say everything is a response to Jesus. And when he had given thanks, Jesus broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, 
then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let me at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Wow, that, that, that was not only lengthy, but Paul talks about a lot of things. So really, uh, in actuality, we, we should probably do two separate sermons for this passage. Unfortunately, we're really beyond it in our, our sermon series, so we're kind of clumping it together. Uh, so I guess, is this mic? Let me just use this mic. Um, yeah, so as far as the earlier question, what part of the female body is written about more than any other part? Ironic, or not ironically, interestingly, it's the woman's hair. Very interesting. I know in our modern context, we're wondering why hair? And, you know, I'm not going to quote any phrases because I don't want to stumble anybody, but you can just listen to the radio, listen to the latest hip-hop album, and you know that, man, there are a lot of body parts that are talked about, sang about, whatever, so on and so forth. But in this ancient period, 2,000 years ago, it wasn't those parts of the body. It was the hair. The hair was a symbol of the woman's glory, the woman's beauty. And if you reveal your hair, man, a lot of males, that was, that was like the way you seduce males, believe it or not. Um, so in some ways, Corinthians, like I mentioned before, it is the red light district of all red light districts. But in this way, it is also kind of conservative. Back in the day, they would cover their arms, they would cover their ankles, they would cover every part of their body and also their hair. So Paul, that's the reason why he talks about head covering over and over again, especially for women, because what happened, well, we'll, we'll break this down. Um, yeah, I, I won't, let, let's, let's break it down one step at a time. Let me first talk about the controversial parts, the parts that I think some of us may feel like this is a little unsettling. Um, so Paul says, I commend you because you remember me. Uh, verse three, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And some of us, like, if you've ever seen, like, the Arthur mood meme, you know, like the fist, some of the women, you're just like, what is he talking about? My head is no what, whatever. And what Paul is saying is there is, in some ways, the way God designed gender, in some ways, there is a hierarchy. And many of us, when we read a verse like this, we're fixated on, wait a minute, the male is, has authority over the woman? The head of a wife is her husband? And we feel a little unsettled. And I think rightfully so. Because in, when you look at the course of human history, man, as a male, I have to apologize. Things are really unfair. Things are completely whack. But if you read this verse in, in its entirety, and that's the reason why I green highlighted everything is the relationship that a man has with his wife is analogous to the relationship that God has with Jesus. So it says right here, yes, the head of a wife is her husband. And some of us are doing the Arthur angry me moon meme, but 
At the same time, Paul says, at the same time, the head of Christ is God. And nobody is going to say, oh, if the head of Christ is God, then that makes Christ in a really unfair situation. Of course not. Because God and Christ, they are so united that Christ is God. God is Christ. I mean, they are so united. There is no disrespect. There is no exploiting each other's weaknesses. There is just perfect union, even though there are some differences. And Paul is saying the same type of relationship that a husband has with a wife is the same type of amazing intimate, perfect, blissful relationship that God has with Jesus. So there is almost like a chain, but that doesn't convey or imply any sense of inequality. Okay, it gets a little hairier though, because Paul says every wife, uh, I'm sorry, let's skip all the way to verse 7. Like I mentioned, we can't go over every verse, and that's what the Q&A is for. Um, verse Seven, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And he's referencing Genesis, the creation account, how Eve came out of Adam and not necessarily the other way around. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And now at this point, we're getting really uncomfortable. What are you saying that Woman was created for man, but man wasn't created for woman. It's pretty tough. And what Paul is really articulating is he's talking about the societal order, how things are running 2,000 years ago. And I think some of us, now that we're becoming much more sensitive to these social justice issues, especially with gender inequality, we are very sensitive to this type of writing. But if you read this passage in context, Paul is not necessarily advocating that this is the way we should fundamentally look at gender. Because he goes on, he's saying that this is the way society thinks. This is the way our current culture thinks. But Paul is saying there is a new reality because of who Jesus Christ is, what he has done, all of this, needs to now be transformed. And he talks about this in verse 11. So, this, so we just read verse 7, 8, 9. He continues to write. So we need to read this in this entire context. He continues to write, nevertheless. So when he writes nevertheless, he's saying everything that I just wrote, yes, that's true of our society. Yes, that's true of our culture. It's unfair, I know. Nevertheless, there's something different in the Lord. In Jesus Christ, in who he is, in what he has done. Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. It goes both ways now. It's not just a woman is not independent of man, but he's saying even male, you, you guys need woman just as much. Because all of this is now being transformed radically in the Lord, in the gospel, in who Jesus is and what he has done. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and this is really what he wants to say. And all things are from God. When it comes to our standing before God, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female. And if you've been with us in this sermon series, it doesn't matter if you're a slave or a free man or a master or rich or poor. It doesn't. When we are in the presence of God, when we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we think about his humble, subservient, sacrifice to us. There is no male or female. None of those distinctions even exist. 
And that is why Paul, the same guy who wrote 1 Corinthians, the same dude writes later, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female. For all of you, because of what Jesus has done, the blood that has washed everything, we are all on equal footing before God. And Paul, again, this is 2,000 years ago. If some of us who are very sensitive to social justice movements, uh, especially in women's rights, if you think about it, women's rights is a very recent thing in our history. Um, you know, Susan B. Anthony is probably one of the bigger names in Canada. I think her name is, I, there's a host of people, but the one name that I remember, Maria Campbell, I believe. But this is all like 20th century. When you think about the course of human history, it's a pretty recent thing. And yes, I support, I commend, I applaud. I mean, all of this, this is great. Like we really need to be more sensitive. And like I mentioned, I'm not just paying lip service. As a male and all males, we should have a sense of, man, like we messed up. And we should truly treat ladies with as the utmost respect and to really assume gender equality, absolutely. But let me tell you, Paul, you can point to Susan B. Anthony, you can point to Maria Campbell, but Paul, man, this guy was radical. This was written 2,000 years ago, not in the 20th century, but 2,000 years ago, where unfortunately, unfortunately, in this society, man, if you are not a prestigious woman, which is a very small percentage of the population, you're basically treated as the property of your husband. I'm sorry, that's just the way things were. And Paul, as he responds to the gospel, as he is overwhelmed and moved by Jesus' love, he recognizes, wait a minute, this gospel, this, it's not just about me going to church and doing spiritual things. This gospel must impact the way I look at women. There is now no more male or female. There is now no more slave or master. It, all those things are obliterated. Because when we are in the presence of God, who is not only so holy, but so loving, it doesn't matter. All of us, we come from God. And it's incredible. When you look at Christianity, I know we have a bad rep, and part of it is because, rightfully so, there are a lot of things our brothers and sisters did that just, we messed up. And even now, we currently mess up. But one of the things about Christianity that's, that's pretty radical is how much women play such a role in the Christian movement. We talked about this for some of us who are part of the John series, but one of the things about the Gospels, all four accounts, every single one of them agree on, who were the people who went to Jesus' tomb when he died? The woman. Who were the first people who saw the resurrected Jesus and who were commissioned by Jesus, our God? Who were the first messengers of the good news? Woman. All four accounts, you can look it up. And here is just one sample, John 20. Now on the first day of the, of the week, Mary Magdalene in Luke 24, it says two other women. They came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Where all the other disciples, they were afraid. They were afraid of the Roman officials. They were afraid of the Jewish authorities. But guess who had the courage? All four gospels, most likely written by male, they don't hesitate. It was the woman. 
while it was still dark, they saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. They weren't afraid. And Mary Magdalene, and again, in Luke 24, it talks about other women. And again, Matthew, Mark, it talks about other women. She went and she is the one who announced to the disciples, read them as male, I have seen the Lord and that Jesus has said these things to me. And if you read the Gospel of John, man, the way the Gospel portrays, I mean, it was written by John, the way the Gospel of John portrays himself, one of the disciples, John Male, the way the Gospel portrays Peter, who's another male disciple, they are messing things up left and right. They are just being cowards. But who are the people who step forward with courage, the first witnesses, the woman. And in this society, again, I say this with a sense of shame, woman, the witness of a woman, no credibility. But think about it. God, who is sovereign over everything, who orchestrates everything in, his, in the course of human history, he purposely designated all of this and said, guess who will be the first people even though there's a fear of the Roman officials, even though there's a fear of the Jewish authorities, guess who will be the first people who lay their eyes on the resurrected Jesus? Guess who will be the first people who will be the ambassadors, the representatives, the messengers of this precious gospel message? Woman. That's our God. That's not the God of social justice movements. That's not the God of whatever, name your religion. That's our God. And Paul is saying, I have experienced, I have, lit, I have tasted this love from this God. The way I look at gender, it needs to radically transform. Now some of us are wondering, if this is a great question, put it in the Q&A. If that's true, if that's what Paul had in mind, then why does, why does Paul write 1 Corinthians 11 the way that he does? Because, man, he's, he's writing in a way where it really kind of ticks me off. And it's not like Paul is changing his mind. Because like I mentioned, Galatians 3.28. And most likely the situation is the Christians at Corinthians, they recognize, okay, gender equality? There's liberation? Guess what? I'm just going to live my life however I want. I'm going to lay down my hair. Hey, if... There is now no more male or female. I'm going to wear whatever I want. I want to dress whatever I want. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You are taking this gospel thing and you are misapplying it. Yes, there is no male or female. But at the same time, societally, we need to conduct ourselves in a respectful manner. I mean, it's similar to me as a preacher. Imagine if I wore, I mean, there's no regulations on what I need to wear. But imagine if I wore things about political party, about this particular politician, and it's just imprinted on my shirt, is, is that I have the liberty to do so, but Paul will look at that and say, don't wear things like that. If I were to wear revealing clothing, <laughs> which, don't imagine that actually, because that would just, yeah. If one of our praise men, but don't imagine that. Let's just say you're at a church setting and man, they are wearing very revealing clothing. And again, laying down your hair is equivalent, equivalent to exposing some of the, whatever our society is hailing as signs of, of sexuality. 
That's what Paul is after. He's not talking about gender equality. He's more talking about wisdom. Try to be loving. Try to use your freedom. Don't abuse it, but use your freedom in a way that will edify and be an encouragement to others. Uh, he goes on, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, so on and so forth. Um, again, we're not going to be able to go through every verse. Uh, I'll just read it in case if you have questions, text it away. Verse 15, but if a woman has long hair, is it her glory? Again, long hair was very symbolic, not only her glory, but her beauty and even sexual connotations. For her hair is given to her for covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Um, we're now going to move on to the next part of the passage. But again, if you have questions, please feel free to text them away. I'm actually going to pause for 30 seconds. Um, you can read the passage on your own, text away before we move into the next passage. Because I know that was pretty controversial. And uh, I feel like we can do an entire sermon on it. So I do feel bad that we're kind of rushing through it. So I'm just going to give us maybe another, you know, 15, 20 seconds. Um, if you have any questions, please don't uh, hesitate. All of these texts are anonymous. Yeah, it's, it's a very loaded topic. Um, it's a very important topic as well. So definitely don't want to rush through it. But again, there is another set of verses. And uh, although the next part of chapter 11, it sounds like he's talking about something completely different. It's really the same theme. Who Jesus is and what he has done, it's going to transform every aspect of our reality. The first passages or verses that we just read is, has to do with gender. These next verses have to do with our social life. Uh, so let's take a look at that. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because you have come together. It is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Uh, and let me just kind of pause and unpack what Paul is talking about. In ancient societies, especially church, the early church, what do they do? They ate together. That was part of their worship. They would do that every single week. I know we do communion once a month, but for the early church, they would do the Lord's Supper every single time that they gathered. It was part of hearing a sermon, singing songs. So some of the things that we do today are the same things that, they, that, that the early church did except we don't do communion every single week like the way that they did. In fact, every ancient community group, whenever you gather together, what do you do? You don't go rock climbing, you don't go golfing. What you do is every single time you gather together is you eat together. That was just the way you bond, that's the way you do. And even when you think about modern societies, when you think about your friends and how you bond. Yeah, some of us, we have, we have shared hobbies, maybe we do do those different activities. But for the most part, every single one of us, whenever we bond with a friend, with our groups of friends, we usually do it over food and drink. So some things just kind of never change. But Paul says, when you gather together, you call it the Lord's Supper. But it's, it's not. Because whenever you gather together, 
each one of you, you guys go ahead with your meal. Each one of you, you guys are rushing to get the best piece. And one goes hungry because people are rushing in line. Another gets drunk. Somebody loves the wine so much, consumes so much work. This person is actually getting drunk during service. What? Do you not have church houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church and humiliate those who have nothing? People who really do need the food and drink. You're humiliating them because you are rushing so much in order to get not only your fair share, but your share that actually compromises the distribution of other people so that they can't even get a piece of the bread. They can't even get a sip of the wine. And I know for some of us, uh, you know, the way we do communion is very orderly. We always have leftover bread. There's always plenty of juice. And you're wondering, okay, how is this relevant to us? Because I've never seen somebody rush to the front, eat like the whole bread and run off and nobody else gets any more bread. Like, I don't think any one of us would do that. Most of us, um, not to be insensitive, but most of us, like we eat and we, in our personal lives, we're able to feed ourselves uh, all these different things. And the situation was definitely different back in Corinth where maybe they didn't have that type of basic living you know, sustenance. But there is a way to apply this. Because like I mentioned earlier, every group, whether you're a church, whether you're secular, pagan, whatever, you're eating together. And it became part of your social life. And what Paul is saying is when you look at your social life, I know everybody eats and drinks together and whatever, but in our church community, the way we eat and drink together, it's not just communion, but even fellowship, it's different. You don't just go to church in order to fulfill and gratify your own social needs. Because Jesus Christ makes our reality different. He says, instead of looking at the Lord's Supper, instead of looking at your church gathering to eat as much as you can, to drink as much as you can, he says, no, 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 no. This is the very next verse. For I have received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What Paul is saying is when you have your fellowship time, when you eat together, when you drink together, even when you are doing all these different activities, remember why we are doing the things that we are doing. Everything that we do, we do as a remembrance of Jesus. Not just when we eat. Even when we look at gender relationships, and like I mentioned, if you've been with us throughout the First Corinthians series, the way you conduct lawsuits, the way you try to manage your own sexual desires, everything that we do must be in remembrance of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. In the same way, Jesus also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. L let me just try to make this as relevant to our uptown community as possible. Everything that we do here must be a remembrance of the flesh that he willingly gave up, the blood 
that he sacrificially poured out. And as we do, we are proclaiming the death of Jesus. Everything that we do, not just communion, not just worship service, the ways that we interact with one another. And let me qualify that a little bit because that might sound a little too radical. That might sound a little too zealous. Because the church, although this is truly the purpose of our existence, is to remember who Jesus is. We are a church that is open to all sorts of people. Because we understand that not everybody in their faith spiritual journey is here. Able to remember who Jesus is. They don't even understand who Jesus is. And if you think about it, a lot of the people who get saved, and even in your own testimony, they go to church not because they have this understanding, oh, I'm going to do everything out of remembrance of Jesus. They go to that church simply because their friend is there. Or simply because there's a free luncheon. Or because there is an activity or whatever. And there, there's nothing wrong with that. Because one of the beauties of the gospel is all of us, we are on a different part of our faith spiritual journey. And for some of us, we look at church as a way to kind of fulfill our social needs. There is nothing wrong with that. We love them. We pour out grace upon them. We try in the best to our abilities, in a gentle way, in a loving way, remind them that all of this is because of Jesus. We do that in a gentle way. That's how we proclaim the gospel to them. But in Paul's situation is, his church is probably, what, 10, 15 people? A good, significant portion of them, they weren't looking at it this way. Every time they saw the bread, like this right now, they're not listening to the sermon. They're just looking at the bread. Their mouths are salivating. When they look at the wine, they're not listening to the sermon. They're just thinking about the taste of wine and what it does to the taste buds of their tongue. That's what Paul is talking about. In this church community, I wholeheartedly encourage for some of us who do understand who Jesus is and what he has done for you, please, everything that you do, please, as a pastor, don't do it because you want to be a good church member. Do it out of remembrance, out of a response of who Jesus is. And for those who don't know who Jesus is, please don't look at this as us creating a wall. We love you. We welcome you. As you partake in our social activities and all these different things, our prayer is that you will see not just a bunch of nice people, a bunch of nice personalities. We pray, our sincerest prayer, our sincerest prayer is that through our actions, you will see Jesus.